Good morning. Um, for those who might be visiting from out of town, my name is Dan Deckard. I'm a, a teaching pastor here, and it is my privilege to bring to you um, a message from the Lord from Scripture. So if you happen to bring your Bible with you, then I would encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. We're really going to look just at verse 13 mostly this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but it feels like, like Christmas time has just screamed up upon us, you know. Um, we're, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. I can't, I can't believe we're here. Uh, and I know some of you are heading out of town. I'm going to go visit relatives in, in our home. It's the opposite. Um, we have the entire side of my wife, my wife's side, coming in starting Wednesday. And uh, by the time Christmas Day happens, every room in the house, minus the bathrooms, we'll have people sleeping in them, which is, is fun for a while. <laughs> no, it's always, a, it's always a good time, but they'll be here on Christmas Eve, and it's, it's going to be a, a great time and um, a time of celebration, which brings us to the topic of, of this morning, and that is the theme of love. Uh, the fourth Sunday of Advent is the Advent of love, and, and I want to look at this whole idea of love. You know, that, that word, love, is in one sense the most potent and powerful word, and at the same time, probably the most misunderstood and abused word in the English language, or I should say in the human language, uh, because we use it for, for so many di- different things. We can talk about loving God using that word, we can talk about loving our, our spouses or our children using that word, and we can use that word to talk about loving Cheetos or loving Jelly Bellies or loving your pet Chihuahua, right? It's just like... That one word used to talk about so, so many different things, some of which are vastly important and others of which are, are, are not so important. The question really before us this morning is, what, what is love? What is it? How is it to be defined? What does it look like? Where does it come from? Um, is it a feeling? Is it an action? Is it both? Is it neither? It's a really important question for us. What, what exactly is this thing called love? Which in one sense we're careful with, like most people who date usually don't say I love you on the first date because they know that that word is powerful, so they wait. But in another sense, it's, it's trivialized when we say I love Cheetos, right? What is it? What is it not? I think many Christians equate love with action. That is, you see somebody who is visiting the sick or giving to the poor, and you would look at that and say, that's love. That is, we associate or we equate love with action, which an action, if it's benevolent and good, may be loving, but it may not be loving. There's a statement by the Apostle Paul in his most famous chapter on love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he writes something that's rather striking. He said, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. There's two dramatic benevolent events happening in this verse. If I give it all away, people would look at that and say, that's love. If I deliver up my body to be burned, which is martyrdom, the ultimate price, if I give my body up to be burned... People would look at that typically and say, that is love. But what Paul says next tells us it's not necessarily the case. That you can do those actions, those dramatic actions, and not have love. And as a result, those actions have absolutely no eternal benefit for you. 
So that tells us that love cannot be reduced to an action. It has to be something more. But what is it? If it's that important, love, if it's that important where if we don't have it, we are and gain nothing, then we ought to understand what it is. So here's the question. What is love according to the scripture? Or let me put it differently. What makes Christian love altogether different than the love we find in the world? What makes Christian love altogether different from other forms of love in the world? And mind you, I think one of the reasons that you can have benevolent action without love is because in this sin-twisted, fallen world, it's really easy for us to mimic love. That is, do the outward actions of love driven by something very self-centered. I mean, you think about it, all of the Christian virtues, you know, faith, hope, love, patience, peace, humility, uh, they can all be mimicked. Um, Someone who's relationally smart, perceptive, will come to understand that to display humility will be more personally advantageous than displaying a cockiness or, or arrogance. And so, in a desire to promote oneself, will actually display humility, but driven by a very self-centered motive. Same thing with love. We can mimic love. We can, like I said, if someone is perceptive and intelligent, they will recognize that if you want to get ahead in the world, then it's better to display acts of, that look like love than to display acts that harm or hurt people. So they will choose to act in ways that are benevolent, but driven by, potentially, a very self-centered motive. That's pride-driven display of humility, a pride-driven display of love, which isn't love, and it's not humility, right? It's, it's like the angel of light that is nothing more than something demonic on the inside. That it's possible to have a, a sin-driven virtue, which is to say that we can mimic it. That's why you can't just look at an action and say, well, that person's a loving person, which we often do, because it goes deeper than just the action. So again, what is, what is it? What is, what, what, is, what is love? And more importantly, what makes Christian love altogether different than the rest of the world's concept of love? That is, the, the world we live in, pride-saturated, sin-twisted, really, when it, 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 the, the, what drives love in our world is an agenda. So what is it? I'd like to answer that question. What makes Christian love altogether different than the love of this world? And I'd like to answer it through John chapter 15, verse 13. I'm going to read verse 12. Put it in context. Jesus gives his command to us, to his disciples. And this is uh, the night he's betrayed, the night before he dies. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So there's the instruction. And then he goes on to give us a thesis about love. It says, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. He says, greater love has no one than this. That's obviously comparative, right? And he said, there's there's no one who has a greater or displays a greater love. And then he's going to go on to say what that is. That is, you can't add to it. What he's about to say, you can't add to it. There's no measure beyond this. This is the greatest love ever. 
And I believe he's primarily speaking of his own life here um, because of the time. That is the night before crucifixion. And this is it. He says, the greatest love is for someone to lay down his life for his friends. Very famous statement, for, for him to lay down his life for his friends. One facet, really important facet of Christian love is that it is, by nature, self-sacrificing. Um, it dies to self in order to do something benevolent for someone else. That's part of its, its nature. It's part of its nature to, to lay down life. And you think about that, there's, there's, there's really no more precious gift we're given than the life itself. I don't know how many of you have seen Hacksaw Ridge. I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to read the story, and there's just a, a sense of amazement that brings you to tears by, by, by witness, witnessing somebody else who's willing to put his own life at risk to save other lives. And it's not, it's not a risk of, of losing money, not the risk of losing um, a car or possessions or even time. It's, it's the loss of one's own life. It, growing up, I had this lady friend of mine who uh, both of her kidneys were failing, and unless she got a transplant or a donor to, to, to offer her a kidney, she was going to die. So her sister, who they matched, um, decided to donate one of her kidneys to, to her, my friend. And she did. I, and I thought at the time, it's like, man, that's a, that's a big sacrifice to have somebody cut you open and take part of you out to give it to a sister. But when she decided to do that, she did more than she had anticipated because her one remaining kidney, the, the donor, um, began to fail. And really, in the offering of her kidney, she was, she was going to offer her, her own life. It's like, wow. This whole notion of, of death, which some in this room are really acquainted with this season, it's like the great separator, right? And I, I've spoken to people through the years who have faced terminal diseases, and one of the things that that, that it brings out in them is, that, is uh, um, an appreciation for simple things. I had a brother once, cancer, tell me, he says, have you ever noticed how green grass is? And I thought, never really noticed. But he had an acute awareness of what was around him. That is, you start to appreciate the simple things like eggnog or Christmas Eve's, um, a warm cup of coffee or tea, reading the paper in the morning, having a conversation with a friend, going for a walk, seeing a sunset, um, hugging your children or your grandchildren, kissing your wife. And at death, all that's lost. It's like all lost. Not only do we lose it, but they lose us. It's the grand separator, right? It's the, it's the ultimate to put one's life down or lay one's life, life down for for another person. For Jesus, though, it was, uh, it was even more than that. He just didn't lay his life down for us, right? He's, he, he laid his life down in a way that caused and created a separation that we will never, if we're believers, never experience. That is to say, he was not only separated from, by death through crucifixion, he was not only separated from the world he was born into and the family and the friends and the mom he had and the creation around him, but but he was separated by, with, with, from his, his father. 
to pay the price of sin. He was, he was abandoned. He was rejected by God himself, which itself is just, we'll, in, a, in, in, a, in, in, in a thousand times 10,000 years, we will never understand the, that kind of death. Uh, I've, been, I've known my wife for 28 years, and I can't imagine living without her. I can't imagine the son, the father and son, living for all eternity, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God. And for even a, a moment of time to be separated from the one that you've existed through all eternity with overwhelming love and joy had to be the worst of all possible hells. Maybe that's what makes Christian love distinctive, is that it is sacrificial. It is selfless. Yes, in one sense. Christians ought to be, if we're to be true to the name, ought to be people who are living sacrificially, self-sacrificing, death to self and life to others. That, that, is, that is part of the quality of Christian love. But here's the thing. Unbelievers can do this too. People who are not Christians can self-sacrifice. Story upon story of men, some of whom might have been believers, others not, throwing themselves on grenades to save their band of brothers. Self-sacrifice. There are guys who protect the president, some of whom don't even like the president, who are willing to jump in front of of the president to take a bullet, right? Willing to self-sacrifice for the sake of another. So what what that tells me is that while, while this facet of Christian love, self-sacrifice, is indeed a facet, it's not what sets it apart. An unbeliever can live a, a, a sacrificial life. So, so what is it? What, what makes Christian love so altogether different? Maybe it has to do with the object of love. Um, for there to be love, there has to be more than one, Right? That's why, by the way, the Trinity is a beautiful truth. God existing as one in three. You can't be love if you're in isolation. God has always been an overflow of love because he's more than one. He's three in one. Side note. Maybe it's the object. He dies for his friends, lays down his life for his friends. Let's just pause for a moment and consider the moral quality of Jesus' friends. Peter, James, and John, and Matthew, the tax collector, and the zealot, and what is the moral quality of Jesus' friends here at this point? Well, let's see. Probably within hours of him saying this, um, their friendship would mean nothing. Uh, His three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, didn't stand by him to pray with him and for him, but rather fell asleep. Peter, his number one guy, the rock, you know, denies even knowing Jesus, just hours from this. And the rest of the disciples, they flee like cockroaches to save their own skin. That's, that kind of moral quality of friendship is deplorable, right? Friends are supposed to stick by one another, closer than a brother, supposed to go down with the ship, supposed to be loyal to the end, loyal to death, which Peter promised, by the way didn't deliver. That is, the moral quality of his disciples is going to, 
is like sand. It's, it's rotten because they're sinful men. In the words of Paul, Jesus laid down his life for enemies. Enemies to make them friends. That's, what's, the, what's our friendship with Christ? What's the moral quality of our friendship with, with him? You know, unfortunately, it doesn't take much to make Christians complainers. Especially when you have your family living in your house for seven days. Or to become frustrated or angry at the Lord or jaded because you felt like the Lord took something away that you loved or he deprived you of something you, you think you deserved and find yourself discontent and judging him. What's the moral quality of our friendship? We're sinners too. I don't think it's an overstatement to say people spend more money on Starbucks and makeup than on the cause of Christ. That is the moral quality of those for whom Christ died is that we're sinful. That is his love is gracious love. Well, maybe that's what sets it apart is that Christian love is gracious in its character. It, it doesn't, it's in popular verbiage, it's unconditional. It offers kindness regardless of whether the person deserves it or not. And to be sure, like that is a mark of Christian love, is the gracious character of it, that we, that we extend kindness regardless of whether the other person deserves it or not. That, that is a facet of Christian love. But here's the thing. Non-Christians, non-believers can, can do this too. And it's, I said this first service, say it again. It's, it's unfortunate that sometimes I have witnessed personally unbelievers be more gracious and kind and forgiving to their ex-wives and husbands and to people who have offended them than many people in the church who hold on to a grudge, failing to forgive and show kindness till the day they die. That is, unbelievers are capable of this kind of love. See, unbelieving parents who are willing to show grace upon grace upon grace to rebellious teenagers. There's nothing about this that is exclusively Christian. Should you, this Christmas, as an application of this, show kindness to family members who don't deserve it? Well, if Christ laid down his life for us, for his deplorable friends, I say yes. And by the way, Jesus is the, 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 the friend, right? He does go down with the ship. He is loyal to his purpose to save us to the end. He's the one who's always protecting, always providing. He's the one who's always side by side, in, with, in front, above, and below his people, even through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't depart. Always here, right, Paul? Always. The belief in that, that he is the truest friend, ought to fill us with a sense of gratitude. But this is not what makes Christian love distinctively and exclusively Christian. So what is it? What is it that makes Christian love altogether different? And I believe the answer to that question has to do with where, or should I say who, love comes from who love comes from. Let me, uh, 
let me read this and then I'll back it up with scripture. This is another quote from one of my favorites. He writes in his book on ethics, he says, The New Testament answers the question, what is love? Quite unambiguously by pointing solely and entirely to Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the only definition of love. But then he qualifies. It's very important. But again, it would be a complete mis- misunderstanding if we were to derive a, a general definition of love from our view of Jesus and of his deed and suffering. Love is not, and these italics are his, not mine. I bolded them, but the italics are his. Um, love is not what he does and what he suffers. Those are the actions. But it is what he reread, what he does and what he suffers. The reason for that is that Christ is love. Like, love is always he himself. Love is always God himself. Love is always the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Right, we're in the Gospel of John. He wrote a couple of other letters in the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, letters to the church. And in the first one, he says this twice. He says, God is love. He doesn't say God like shows love, which he does, or that God offers love. He says God is by, by very definition, by very nature, he is love. He, he is love. So here back in the Gospel of John, when it says the word became flesh and dwelled among us and we beheld his glory full of grace, which is an aspect of truth or love, and truth, I think you could translate that, especially since John uses the word love more than anybody else in the New Testament and any book in the Bible except the Psalms, that would be appropriate to translate that verse, John 1.14, that God's love became flesh and dwelt among us. His love became flesh and dwelt among us. That he he is love and he is the source of love. And not only the source of love, but he's the only one who can sustain love. In other words, what makes Christian love altogether different is is, is, is where it comes from. Where it originates, it originates in and is sustained by Jesus and Jesus alone. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't originate from our will. It doesn't originate from our strength. It's borrowed. And isn't that kind of the whole, if you've been following, and if you haven't been following, you're brand new, just read chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, because it's, it's permeated with this whole idea of Christ in us. I in you and you in me. That is, he talks about the, 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 the helper that he's going to give, which is the spirit of Christ in us. He says it's not just going to be, he's not going to be with you. He's going to be in you. I am in you. I, who, are, who, who, who am God's love in the flesh, is now in you. In other words, love dwells in you because my presence is in you. Just a few verses before, verse 5, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Branches dependent upon the vine. Whoever abides in me and I in him, I will be in you. He it is that bears much fruit. And I think in context, he's talking about the fruits of love. For apart from me, you can do nothing. No amount of benevolent action apart from abiding in Christ does anything. It's unfruitful. 
That, that, that therein is the key. That's what makes Christian love altogether different than love we find anywhere else is that it originates with Christ's presence in us. It's not our own. It's not our own. And part of the, our responsibility as believers is to, to know that I can't love by myself. I can't offer anything but an agenda-driven, self-centered love without Christ. Which means, according to verse 5 of chapter 15, I have to stay in him. I have to abide in him. I, there needs to be this obedient dependence and submission to him constantly. Because by myself I'm bankrupt, but in him love flows. And that, that just knowing that, it, it has like huge implications for how we think about things. I mean, it, it, it really means that you have nothing to offer anybody by yourself. You don't. It also means that for church guys, churchmen like myself, and churches have a, a tendency to want to get people to do things, you know, and so in an effort to get people to do things, we press really hard and heavy on personal responsibility and doing stuff, and so we tell people in the church, you need to get out there and love people and clean out gutters, <laughs> which is good. We're supposed to stimulate one another to love and good works, but if our first priority is not to have a dependent submission to Christ as the source, as the exclusive source of love, then everything that we offer the world is, again, agenda-driven or an attempt at guilt avoidance. Go join the love crusade. Let's do this. And then you peter out five minutes later. Why? Because you were drawn from your own source of strength rather than the source of Christ who is the vine. That's... This, this Christmas, you know, and, and it went, listen, here's the other thing is that the difference, people can tell the difference. There's, when, when we venture off and attempt to do benevolent action apart from a, this, this constant dependency upon Christ, it, it's powerless. It just doesn't, it doesn't do anything. It just is kind of a lifeless action. But boy, when, when there is a genuine dependence on Christ and his his, his presence, his love, he's the exclusive source of love, begins to flow through your veins like blood, then that's powerful. And it really does change the world. That's the, change the world. And that's distinctive Christian love. And that's what the world doesn't have because they don't have that source. We do. I've said this before and I'll close with this. Uh, my favorite musical of all time, times, Les Miserables. What I haven't told you is that my favorite part of my favorite musical, Les Miserables, is at the very end. The finale or the epilogue, in which all of the characters who have been broken and redeemed in the story come back onto the stage. There's, if you've never seen it, it's a must-see. Absolutely must-see. Like, don't die. Put it at the top of your bucket list. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> at the end, there's Jean Valjean, and there's Fontaine, and there's uh, Eponine, and there's Cassette, and there's Marius. And they're all there, some of whom Fontaine had passed away. And they're all representations of redemption. 
you know, a, a prostitute and an ex-con. But their story is amazing because the heart of the convict, Jean Valjean, was changed by the simple touch of love from a priest. And a prostitute and her offspring and her soon-to-be husband and friend are changed because of the simple touch of love of the ex-convict who had been changed because of the touch of a priest. And in the, they're on the stage, and the fi- some of the final lines of the musical go like this. To love another person is to see the face of God. Put in this context, I believe that's the truth. That what people are supposed to see in us as we live in constant dependence on Christ as the source of love, showing itself in generosity and also in sacrifice, is they are not supposed to see us at all. They're not supposed to see our love. They're supposed to see his love and to see and experience what God is like, the face of God. That's the challenge as we head into this week. I know some of you are going to gather with family members you don't care for that much. And you might have a hard time loving them. That's, that's, that's okay. Where are you going to find the source of strength to really love another person so that they can see the face of God? Well, you need to stay focused on Christ, dependent on Christ, and worshiping Christ this season. Not just this season, all the time. This, because this is what makes Christian love so radically different than any form of love we find in the world. Amen? We pray, I pray, pray a blessing over you this morning, Parkway, that, that God may use you and that he may flow through you to show people who come into your homes or whose homes you go into that they will see and taste and know the face of God through their love. Amen.